Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Was that, that a, a no Russian beekeeper reference? Joke? Or was it a beekeeper reference? I haven't seen the beekeeper. I, I'm excited to see the beekeeper. I, you guys suck, but you guys don't know how to watch movie. I, don't, I haven't seen the movie. I didn't see but it. Like, don't implicate me. Every single one of my friends' reviews for The Beekeeper is like, I had a great time watching this. It's just one of those dumb, fun action movies. The politics are shit. One star. You know what I mean? It's like, come on. You haven't seen the movie. So, so you, I know, I you, know, you feel, but like. What, what are we talking about here? We, yeah. know, we know what we're talking about here. You guys need a kickback. What do you need to do? You need to crack open a cold one. Jason, add in here. Get some <laughs> snacks. Turn, what is it? Turn your brain off. <laughs> enjoy a dumb action movie. You know, just let people enjoy things. Is that why you guys like this yeah, movie? Yeah, just let people just let people enjoy <laughs> things. Um, we'll get into it. We we'll get into it. What movie um, are you talking about? I don't even know what movie you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, we don't even know for the, for this one yet. Um, the Beekeeper. I still haven't seen it, so don't don't slide that shit by me, Aaron. I don't even uh, think if you I guys would it. like the Equalizer films starring Denzel Washington. I liked the Beekeeper more would... than I liked the first Equalizer film. Whoa. Okay. Have Take you seen the classic Two Guns? I haven't. With, I would love with, to see uh, that, Marky though. Mark and Denzel yeah. Washington. Okay. Hmm. I, I shudder at the, the rating you would give. You would find you would break into the Letterboxd HQ and just force a software engineer Dude, at gunpoint if, to add in a negative star if option. If the Beekeeper had a single good action scene, I would rate it a four. But yeah. the, the action scenes are shot like absolute shit. That's too bad. Well, we'll see. We'll see how I feel. My movie pass points just got reset because I bullied them into resetting them for me. So... We'll see if I get to see it this week. Uh, but for right now, we have a different movie to talk about here on Trilove, the literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at or through the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast, find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema, and at Trilon.org. My name is Jason Daphnis. I don't wait for old people, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Harry Mackin. I know three types of karate, jujitsu, aikido, and regular karate, and if you mess with me, I will fuck with you up. And you can find me on Twitter at PunishTake. But again, remember, don't mess with me. I'll fuck you up. My name is Aaron. I don't suck dick, okay? And I'm currently taking a Twitter break, so you can't find me on there. But, uh, you know, wait a little bit. Maybe I'll... Maybe you can find me maybe a few weeks, maybe a few days, maybe a month. Who can say when I will make my return? You're like the fucking Batman of Minneapolis and Chicago Twitter. Like, maybe I'll be there. Maybe I won't. Uh, only yes. when you need me. I, and he inspires I like to equal think of dread myself as Batman <laughs> in the the denizens yeah. of or the ne'er do wells of Twitter. Did I ever tell you about the the this is a weird little tangent that everybody's Please. gonna hate? But did I ever tell you about the the guy that I, I worked with? He was like a an IT guy. Not I was a, I was in software, and he was an IT guy. So like he was doing all like the safety protocols and whatever you know, phishing links, kind of that kind of training stuff. And uh, he, he, he once said to like a group of people just like standing around the lunchroom, he was like, a question that I always ask 
all of the people, the big nerd, and he was like, I always ask <laughs> oh, all the people thanks. that I interview. I didn't get I that from the accent that you were doing, so I'm glad that you specified that <laughs> for me. I always ask all of the people that I interview who would win in a fight, Batman or Superman, because seems like a simple question, but it actually reveals their thought process about how they think about this sort of stuff. And, you know, he went in the the classic rant about that sort of thing. Yeah. And the whole time I'm sitting there like, what if you interview someone who doesn't like fucking know this outside of like the cultural, <laughs> like, an adult. like you're, you're basing whether someone gets hired at this company based on whether they understand that Batman prepares a lot and, and Superman uh, can be taken down with proper preparation, like fucking Joe you know, 22, fresh out of college, maybe doesn't have any fucking idea about that, right? Like, what percentage of the population is, I guess, I don't know, maybe the IT. Or the other way uh, around, uh, like a 35-year-old who's been doing are... IT, yeah, sysadmin for like 10 yes. years, isn't going to know that shit because he's just fucking not up to wow. speed. Wow, all of our basically the shit. Comic, comic shop guy from The Simpsons. I don't, so I don't basically... have like a ton of input on that. That's a pretty funny story, except to say that I like both of your examples of the type of person who wouldn't know that are so wrong and so deeply millennial. I like, I understand it. You're like I'm 22 years old. Credit to old absolutely people. grew up with that. Also, you said a 35 year old who does IT absolutely in the target demographic for the person who would know about that. We're talking right, but like you're you're. The the idea of like filtering it based on that. No, is I mean like it's terrible. So, Obviously, you're right. Borderline discriminatory. <laughs> yeah, of course. To be quite honest, <laughs> like it's it's absurd. Yeah, yeah. No, anyway. I, you're right. You're right. Anyway, uh, Superman. Yeah, Superman. Well, how much how much uh, prep time yeah. does Batman have? It doesn't. It doesn't matter. The bat, okay. Batman prep time shit is bullshit. Superman. If can, he's got kryptonite. You know, if he's got yeah, kryptonite. I guess. I guess. Batman. Why can't Batman Superman just pick up a really long object and hit him with it? You know, from far away. You know, and nobody ever talks about this, but if you had like a like a big, big uh, mile long lance, Superman could pick that up. What if Superman, Superman just poke at Batman? What if he just peels the outer you know? layer of the well, earth right out from that's underneath? That's the other Batman's, thing about Superman like a, is like a, like a Clementine. Those are all lethal, sure. uh, like acts, and Batman doesn't or Superman doesn't kill people, and Superman would presumably have to fight with honor, right? So, like, you have to bring it back to that. It's like, of course, I think we're doing a hypothetical scenario about the two fighting each other. I think it's to the death. That's my opinion, and I will not be swayed from I don't it. Think I believe this is a hypothetical about to the death. But you, you said but, Batman but and Superman. A, it's like okay, well, if it's a hypothetical, then then Batman is using two AR-15s. Like that doesn't it doesn't make any sense. Their characters are defined by. The fact that they don't kill each other. How do we? How do we get here? How do we hmm. get here? Yeah. Anyway, Jason, continue. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, we're talking Batman versus Superman in this in, in that case, but we're talking uh, Triline versus the Heights at the fifteenth um, uh, annual Neo Noir Festival. As part of which, this movie that we're about to discuss actually played. How is that for a kickflip segue into? Discussing the actual movie, um, which uh, is going to be uh, railed, rolled rolled into by uh, our one and only. Uh, the whole Batman thing got me off. I was so it's ready Aaron, to be like, wow, best in the biz. Look at that transition. It's Aaron Grossman's <laughs> patented summary. Why haven't you begun yet? Oh, you're playing this in the back oh, man. while I talk. That, I thought this was just a long... That's my favorite okay, thing uh, we've added to this in a long time, Jason, I must say. If you it's put this in the around. background of all of my summaries, I would, how long is the loop for this? Well, it's the whole song, so it's two minutes 40. Okay, I, yeah, great. Okay, uh, yes, we're talking about Hard Eight, folks. 1996 film directed by 
Uh, PTA, Paul Thomas Anderson. The film stars Philip Baker Hall uh, as an ostensibly well-meaning gambler who takes the recently homeless John Finnegan, played by John C. Riley, under his wing uh, and teaches him the ropes of, of kind of Las Vegas and the kind of high life, you know, of like a gambler, how to how to bet against the the house and win, right? Um, this is also that John can uh, raise six thousand dollars to bury his recently deceased mother. Uh, there's kind of a time jump and two years later things are going much better for John um, he's also made friends with a kind of a, a less than well-meaning casino security worker uh, named Jimmy played by Samuel L. Jackson uh, things become even more complicated uh, when John falls in love with an under her luck Reno cocktail waitress named Clementine played by Gwyneth Paltrow stuff kind of goes from there we'll talk about it uh, the film is PTA's first. Uh, it is largely based on his 1993 short film, Cigarettes and Coffee. Um, Heart Eight also has a relatively short cameo from Philip Seymour Hoffman, making this film with two of the coolest and best actors named Philip. Uh, that's what I got. It's the sexiest Jason shit Jason's ever been, or that Aaron's is, ever been. So that yeah. really worked out for him, this that is, song. I think so. I don't know if I make this joke on Letterboxd and here, but this that is my new, uh, that is the, the theme song to my life. I would like to, you know, kind of wish this into existence. I feel like I've heard uh, that song uh, in a lot of other contexts beside this movie. I don't know I think it's which just context, very, but Or it's I, like such a general vibe. Yeah, for like it does a, kind, you know, of kind of sound like a, yeah, it's, yeah, like <laughs> you know, music like a little cocktail. bit. In a good way. Yeah. Like it's a great song. I'm not saying it's not, but great song. yeah. For sure. Yeah. Uh, if you if you give me a little bit of a heads up, I can just play it anytime you're playing or talking, Aaron. It can be actually your entrance music for this podcast episode if you want. Uh, but I was going to toss it back to you for um, for your opinion about this movie. We have, I, I believe, a 60-30 uh, majority between folks who liked this movie or really liked it and one who didn't. Where are the other 10%, who, Jason? Where's the other uh, 10%? Whatever. Whatever. There, It's the devil's share, so to speak. Uh, angel's share? Devil's share? What is... I forget what that term is when a little bit of alcohol is lost in the brewing process. I think that's the angel's share, but I prefer the devil's share. For the de- it's us for it's the that's... devil's share for us for podcasts. It's the devil's share. Wow, because there's no salvation. Uh, Aaron, what what did you think about this movie? Uh, your experience with uh, PTA, notwithstanding. Uh, I liked this film quite a bit. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Actually, I I will say I. Uh, uh, this one, I don't know, how do you say it? I feel like this movie kind of, maybe Harry will disagree ba- based on his uh, uh, kind of general dislike, which we'll get to, I'm sure. Uh, but I think this movie goes down real smooth, uh, which is not necessarily always correlated with like the quality of a movie, right? Um, but I think that like, you know, just to, to maybe put the quality of the movie off for a little bit, I think this movie goes down smooth. I think it's it's got four uh, uh, quite talented uh, actors who I think are all kind of doing their thing uh, pretty well. Um, I think that uh, uh, specifically Philip Baker Hall is just like a delight uh, to watch as the kind of, I think, unexpected main character in this movie. Uh, I was anticipating John C. Riley and, and his character kind of being uh, kind of uh, front and center. Um, that is like weirdly kind of not the case. Uh, I think that, you know, in, in that manner, um, you know, this is a kind of, common story that I think we've all like generally seen before, right? Young, down on his luck kind of guy gets recruited by this kind of older, more knowledgeable, slightly mysterious kind of gentleman to kind of learn uh, uh, kind of, you know, the ropes, learn the tools of the trade. Um, And I think that like it kind of sets that up interestingly, 
uh, and then also sets up like a similar sort of story for Gwyneth Paltrow's character, um, and then kind of just follows Philip Baker Hall around for for most of the movie, uh, with with actually you know uh, John and Clementine kind of going off and and doing their thing for the final act, um, and I think it like kind of works that way. I'm not going to say that this is some like uh, uh, masterfully. Uh, uh, written, um, you know, kind of uh, poker gambling drama. Um, it's really not that, um, but I think that it is effective in what it is doing. I think that it, it has a very good vibe to it. It has a great soundtrack, um, like a great soundtrack before PTA would, would start working with, uh, uh, what is it, Greenwood, um, the yeah. you know, Radiohead guy, uh, uh, for all of his kind of more famous soundtracks for the second half of his career. I think that, like, you know, um, this is a simple movie, but it very purposefully sets up kind of the bounds of what it is doing. And I think that it it kind of delivers on its promises in a way that I find quite rewarding. Um, so I found it a pleasant watch. I found it quite enjoyable. Um, I would like to revisit this one. I guess the last thing I'll say is that, like, I think there are moments of the the script, particularly that are maybe a little cliche, not that I view it as like a large problem, but it is there. Um, but I think that the the kind of craft on display, you know, um, obviously, this is this is not like doing anything as amazing as most of the films that would follow this in PTA's career. But I think that there are definitely moments here where you can tell like this guy really has it. Um, and like, maybe he's not firing on all cylinders here. But like, I could see why people were watching this movie and thinking like, this guy's gonna do some, some great stuff um, down the road. You know, I think that the next movie would have him kind of break out of his shell a little bit more. Um, I would imagine that, that when this came out, there were a whole ton of, of Pulp Fiction comparisons, especially Pulp Fiction being two years previous. Um, probably a lot of comparison to Tarantino. Um, but, you know, I think that this movie shows that, like, there is a director here who can really get great performances out of his actors, who generally knows what he's doing, um, and, like, probably has a pretty promising career. So, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I guess, Jason, you, you agree with yeah. me? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think I see a lot of the same things, maybe to different degrees. Um, I, too, uh, admit it is not like a genre pushing boundary breaking attempt. I put it in leagues with in league with like the bounds and blood simples of the world where it's an early showing of uh, filmmakers like craft and serve their eye for things. But I don't like to think of it as like, because I just don't know PTA that well. I know some of his better known films, but I haven't seen all of them. I still haven't seen punch drunk love, for example. Uh, but like the, it knows its limits in a way, like it doesn't punch too far above its weight class. Like I would say both bound and blood simple do. They're like really still striking movies today where this one, like you said, goes down smooth. There's nothing too frictiony about it. Um, it has its moments. And I think it's like, when I watch it, I see like really richly built characters. I see those characters coming unwound. And I realized like before I sort of already knew going in that, oh, this is pretty by the book noir in a, in a lot of like plot turns and a lot of framing and a lot of the scripting and stuff. Um, it doesn't like try too much beyond what it sort of promises on the box. Um, and I guess, I don't know if I like, I, I don't see its limitations and its recognitions of its limitations as a negative in this case. Like it, it didn't really surprise in too many ways. It's not um, trying to do anything that like that another movie hasn't done before it. It's sort of updating and maybe modernizing those takes a little bit of, you know, the forties, thirties uh, noir tropes. And like, you know, I, I, it's been a long while since I've seen Pulp Fiction, so I won't compare it to, but uh, I, I, 
as I as I remember, it's a little bit more genre bending than than this is. This one, like like Aaron already said, goes down a little bit smoother uh, than most of its contemporaries and most of the movies that would follow it. Uh, I respect it. I I like what happened. Some of the like a lot of the richness of the characters is what this movie sailed on for me. I'm sure that was partially due to the. Uh, performances, but also due to some of the writing and some of the way that like the script and the story builds those characters. I like that you brought up that Sydney did not feel like he was going to be the main character. Apparently, apocryphally, uh, as far as I could tell, uh, PTA was going to title this movie Sydney, uh, which would have, as the studio thought, given it a little away too much as far as like the turn that it executes over the course of the movie where he does become the main character where like his unraveling becomes sort of the point of the movie um, versus uh, John, as you might have assumed, as I did versus John's slow like spiral into that CD gambling world, uh, the world of organized crime that Sydney is um, implicated or excuse me, implied to have come out of. Anyway, I just think that there's the richness of those characters and the slow unraveling of them at both as like, at, you know, mentally and emotionally over the course of the plot, but like before us as the audience, um, sort of like a, I won't say deconstruction, but sort of a, what they were postured at, at the beginning, in the beginning, how they were positioned versus what they end up being, uh, to the plot and to each other, I think is just an interesting, uh, fun, if not completely unpredictable, uh, like course for the plot to take. Uh, and yeah, just shot, like eventually it starts to feel like major motion picture style, very like confidently and cleanly again, nothing to, uh, rule breaking, but just, yeah, pleasant to watch. Um, I know this is not heaps of praise. I don't think anybody's going to change Harry's mind on this one, but I do. I just want to like put it down. I'm, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed watching it, um, both in context and out of context of Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, career that would come after it. I'll also say really quick uh, before Harry shits on the movie. Uh, I, 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 <laughs> we're really I, building this thing. I know. Up so yeah, we're doing guys. the thing where we like this build it up. So and then fun it's, for it's, me. <laughs> it's fine. Um, I, I also, uh, I will say that I, I don't. I, I like the the vibe of this movie, even outside of uh, being kind of the, this neo noir, you know, the sleek kind of jazz music. Uh, uh, kind of, you know, in the background sort of movie. I think that I like, I do really like this movie as a movie. Did you just, just lose? Concerned with oh, like Las Vegas uh, and with gambling and like, there aren't actually that many movies that kind of have that vibe to them. Like there are a few like classics. There are a few like action movies that have components of that. Something like Casino Royale, but like, I really like that vibe. And this movie kind of delivers on that in like a pretty, like dumb and kind of direct way that I, I kind of vibe with. Um, like I, I, I watched this and like immediately afterwards was like, I wonder where I can play poker in Chicago. And I like <laughs> literally like Googled around like how, what is, how much would I have to pay for like, just like an entrance to a table playing poker in Chicago. So if I like go bankrupt, if I like have to sell everything I own, I get divorced. I, I you know, if, if that does happen over the next year or two, that's due to this movie. Uh, and I take back all my praise. Uh, but until that happens, I just like, I, don't, I like the vibe, man. Uh, you know, dumb caveman guy thing to say, but like it, it, it has that vibe and I dig it. Um, yeah. Well, I don't mean to position it as the world against Harry. In this uh, too case, late, bud. But I found, <laughs> you I just found, spent I 20 minutes your, doing that. I, I found, you were the one who led off with, boy, I really fucking hated this movie in Discord. <laughs> so don't leverage that. You talked about it before the movie, before the discussion even started. All right. But I do want to like, I want to put it in front of you to say like, 
where did this movie go wrong for you? Uh, because yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson, noir, sure. 90s, sounds like something you would typically um, be interested I'm a, in. I'm a really big PTA fan. I've seen all of his movies except for Magnolia and Inherent Vice. Um, I just haven't made time for those. I feel bad. I'm guessing I'm really going to love Inherent Vice because I love Pynchon. Inherent um, Vice is good. Yeah, yeah. Um, this movie, to me, um, I... I agree with a lot of what you guys said. I, I noticed neither of you talked about what this movie had to say. Uh, the theme of this movie, uh, pointed, where yeah. it was using its characters. Yeah, uh, this reminded me a lot of like the um, the types of criticism that were often leveled against the early French New Wave movies, where like old critics of French New Wave would say that they understood movies, but they didn't understand characters. I think this is a uh, movie with very, very little to say about much of anything. Uh, I think what it does have to say is both obvious and condescending. And I think it features some of the most, again, condescending, condescendingly written and like annoying two dimensional characters that I've seen. I think that Gwyneth Paltrow's character is one of the more like blatantly misogynistic characters that I've ever seen in a movie. She, she's a character who just can't help herself from being a whore. Uh, and ha like everybody blames her for that, even though they say they don't, uh, most of the movie involves the main character, white knighting her about that and trying to change her from who she is. The main, uh, <clears throat> Like dramatic stakes of the movie come with from her um, continuing to be to prostitute herself even post marriage for no reason that she can clearly explain. Um, I think it's maybe supposed to be some element of her character that makes her impulsive that she can't do that, but it really comes across as like she's the reason for all of these characters' troubles in a way that's really annoying. Um, the main one of the main characters who we're supposed to like hits her, and like a second later. Uh, like she is blamed for being hit and told to express her love for the guy who just hit her anyway. Um, the black character similarly is relatively two dimensional. It is just sort of like a stand in for this like cutthroat new age. Whereas the main character himself in my mind sort of represents this really annoying version of like the old ways, right? Like the old sort of like class, the old sort of like, honor um it makes it really obvious when the turn happens that that pta doesn't actually believe those things right like it turns out that this guy is a scumbag and a criminal who is trying to outrun his uh criminal past and doing whatever it takes to get there as he always has um i didn't find that to be a really um exciting reveal um i think that the film has a lot of structural problems the fact that it's based on a short film is really obvious to me because the entire tension happens off screen in one scene and then we get the fallout of the tension which is exactly what happens in reservoir dogs um I, again, like I honestly, this feels like a film students like Tarantino movie to me in a way that I really like. I liked the first act a lot. And then when the characters didn't change at all and it became clear that um, John C. Riley's character was not going to have a character per se, but was instead going to be a sort of like wish fulfillment stand in that only served to uh, further like illustrate the main character's character arc. Um, it really lost me, but, but I think more than anything, what really lost me was the Gwyneth Paltrow character, which is like so obviously riffing on something like Sharon Stone and Casino, but like Sharon Stone and Casino is like such a fascinating, fantastic character. And Gwyneth Paltrow in this movie just exists to basically be abused and is not given any depth in my mind or any real like 
interesting characterization to make that feel warranted. And so instead we get this 24 year old white filmmaker who loved Tarantino movies and is doing a lot of the exact same things that Tarantino was doing. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that like this, this idea that it comes away with at the end, right. That like, Hey, it turns out that like this old guard guy, he has always been about trying to evade and edit, his life and his responsibilities to make his story something that it wasn't. Uh, and he's going to keep doing that, even though he's going to keep failing to do so. Right. And like the fallout of his actions are going to continue to affect people. Interesting, but obvious and not really anything I needed a movie to tell me. Um, and so I kind of came away with a movie that, that like is profoundly uninterested in affecting anything other than the craft. Uh, and maybe that's why I didn't like it, I guess. Um, I just, you know, I just didn't, I found it all frustratingly basic and also sort of like gross, I guess. Yeah. I don't think anything you're saying there is like, is at all inaccurate of what the movie actually has in it. I think I was probably giving it more leeway, more, uh, grace than, uh, than like you felt like giving it because when I'm watching, I guess the, the character turn that we were talking about before from Sydney being like sort of. Appear, I, I guess from the very first few scenes where he's showing John the ropes around the casino, I assumed at some point Sydney is going to get into trouble. He's going to, you know, his debts are going to come back to haunt him. And as in classic noir style, he's going to like basically come up and will will get him. He will get his after decades of running from his, you know, his demons sort of thing. That does not happen. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, and it doesn't happen really to uh, anybody except Jimmy, um, where he is given like before a direct like as a direct and immediate consequence of his actions. He is given uh, like he's he's killed by uh, by Sydney somewhere along the way. Um, it is, I think, like the the saving grace of that character. And we can talk about Clementine. I think she deserves her own little section of the of the discussion. Um, but so I think Sydney is like, because he was the focus of the movie to me um, because he does become the focus of the movie objectively. I think it's interesting. Like that character remained interesting because he is um, in, again, in a typical noir, he would probably be undone by his, uh, by, by the demons of his past or by like his search for something or his attempt to preserve like somebody else. In this case, he is not undone by much at all. He gets away pretty scot free the whole like i mean it's the most on the nose thing but the very closing shot of him pulling his uh, suit jacket over the blood stain on his shirt is like oh well he's preserved this version of himself that he had built before john that he had like sort of positioned to the world that he is this wizened old man with nothing but sage advice to share and he can be relied on as a voice of reason and authority and confidence and it's like we as the audience right. are the only ones by the end of the by the end of the movie who get to see. And I don't know I'm not like showing anything new. No, about no, 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 I, think I get it. Just, I, I think, think like what I liked about than, that or what I got about that was that it is sort of subversive, right? It's like now we know that yeah, that anyway. he isn't this guy who is trying to save like the uh, corrupted new world because he is right. uh, he is like a white knight from a previous era, the way he's kind of set up. Instead, in fact, he is a man desperate to escape his own past, desperate to escape yes. the fact that he was a criminal himself. He is trying to find some sort of redemption through saving uh, the people he sort of perceives to be responsible for from the fallout of his actions. But in the process, he is going to continue to uh, do 
go back to the old me, right? So exactly. to speak, like, and, and, and be a criminal I mean, and try to exactly. like win that through force. So in fact, fact he's, that- he's leveraging the same um, evils that that defined his previous life and his current life, even as he tries to escape from them. Yeah, I think the way that you position it as like a generational thing, clearly that's in the movie too. But I hadn't thought about before how Jimmy is, he's younger. Uh, by the way, Samuel L. Jackson, I think I did the math right, 48 in this movie. That motherfucker was almost 50 Dude, he, years he looks old like he's younger shit. than me in this he, movie. It's I crazy. Thought, oh, he's got to be 32 or something. He looked crazy. Wait, what dude. are you talking about? His his defining physical characteristic is the crazy, intense balding. Yeah, but like that, hap- that happens that happens to people at, who are th- who just turned thirty one on January twenty first, twenty twenty four. So don't don't leverage <laughs> you are not that, that old, Jason. Come on, not you yet. got a nice, beautiful uh, head of hair. Thank you. Thank He's you. got um, a long, long, luscious long, locks. Really, nobody sees the him on Greek, camera right now. But. You're you're not meant to be podcasting in the Midwest. You're meant to be diving into the sea in exactly. Greece. And, yeah. and catching octopi in your hand. You know, I've said this before, <laughs> and I'll, I'll say it again. More... The fucked up thing is that Jason can be so casually funny about the fact that he uh, thinks he's balding because he's going to look so good when he is bald. So, like, he's oh, got well, fucking no. nothing to worry I've got, about. I've got a lot he's of work to do. Up. i got a lot of work to do. I'm going to end up yeah. looking like Farmer John, uh, you know, plowing the fields if I don't put on some Stanley Tucci muscle. A and sexy, get like, like, Franciscan monk. Precisely. You know, yeah. vibes. Yes. Um, but it is like the the fact that Jimmy is part of this younger generation. He is objectively like closer in age as portrayed to John than to Sydney. He is like, if there is a generational consideration or conversation going on here between sort of like who Sydney was and the world he comes from and sort of like how things were done back then and the way that John, like the world that John wants to help bring about is, you know, part of the new, we'll say the new set um, with, with Clementine. Jimmy is lumped in with the younger group. Uh, you know, he's, he's a contemporary of John, so to speak. He's one, he's friends with him. He, he's in the same social like sphere. And the fact that Sydney literally murders the guy to maintain his own, uh, you know, fiction, his own, yeah, his own porcelain picture, perfect, like porcelain visage before John, somebody that he wants to like desperately wants to earn the respect of. And only in that one moment when he says, Hey, I love you like a son. And they both break. Well, John breaks down in the recognition that like, that's the last time he's ever going to hear him. I guess like those moments, while not novel or like the most interesting thing they possibly could be, they are like affecting in the moment because I consider the way that this character has both been built before me. And I've watched him come undone from that. And internally in the like story of the, in the plot of the movie, he is himself like, his little fiction is coming undone. His myth is coming undone and the lengths he's gone to, to protect it with just one goal. And it's to like better his own. I'm being brought about this, but like better his own position, better his own, uh, like uh, what am I thinking? Like wear the mask a little bit better, a little bit longer, uh, you know, making that one final gamble, I guess that to me is just like, that's good. That's kind of meaty. It's not like, Again, it's not saying a whole lot. It's very individualized, very like closed uh, narrative. Uh, but I still found like it enjoyable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess your mileage may vary. For one thing, um, yeah. I found it a little bit. I found the ending a little bit dishonest because we have a whole like movie about how this is a character we're supposed to like and sort of respect. I don't actually think it deconstructs him pretty much at all. And then at the end of the movie, it's supposed to say like, Hey, this was a deconstruction of this guy's whole deal. 
uh, and it should change how we think about him. And I, I don't think the movie earns that. Um, but also, I just, I guess, I don't find Sydney sympathetic or likable at all in this movie, mostly because I find his like paternalism so grating, um, and I find the the film world that the movie sets up to make it. Uh, less grating, so obnoxious and obvious, where, like, John C. Riley is acting like a child in this movie throughout this in, like, a really blatantly two-dimensional way that is really annoying to me. Um, and I, like, I again, I get it, right? I get the capital T reason why that character acts that way and how it sort of further characterizes Sidney's paternalism as something that is actually sort of, um, like... Uh, necessary, uh, if not if not desirable or if not sympathetic. But I really like. I hate how like in this world, like Sydney is like the one adult, and then like he wants. He clearly wants these kids to be his like his foster children, right? His, his new family. Um, the the way that the movie makes it so easy for him to do that, uh, because of who these people are and the way that it, it like basically robs them of any sort of sense of their own agency in the process is really frustrating, especially because like I knew pretty early on that the movie was actually going to be discrediting and sort of like, um, critiquing, Sydney's need to be paternalistic in this way. So it's like, hey, why not like make the paternalism and make the critique of the paternalism that like these characters are actually autonomous and attempting to sort of like break and tame them into the mold that you want them to exist in is not going to work out for you. And I kind of thought that's what the movie was doing, but then it wasn't in, in my opinion. And instead it sort of like folds them away so that we can continue to look at this character who is defined by like wanting to seek redemption through this very traditional paternalistic condescending um, approach to trying to sort of like undo his past mistakes and in the process, right? Like, I don't know, like it's so it's fucking gross. Like I think Jimmy is right in a lot of ways. Like I, and and I think that like the point of the movie is that Jimmy is right in some ways that like, Hey, like murdering your uh, foster son's dad and then trying to take his dad's place um, is not about your son. Like you don't love that guy. Like a son, you are trying to be somebody you're not. Um, and I'm going to reveal that, right, is, is Jimmy's whole thing. And then um, Sidney kills Jimmy to keep his secret, right? Basically, he's already, you know, like, I don't, I doubt he needed the $6,000 back or whatever. And so the ultimate reveal of the movie to me is like, hey, Sidney wasn't a good guy. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I mean, like, he was trying to be all paternalistic and white knighty to uh, two grown people um, in a way that, that really, like, sat with me wrong anyway. Um, but... Uh, if if you didn't feel that way about Sydney, I could see how the tragedy of this kind of spins um, into something more interesting. Yeah, I I don't know that beyond the middle of the second act, maybe that that I found Sydney very much of an empathetic character. Um, it did like we call it trapping, call it like Aaron said, you know, a uh, big Italian dumb brain guy. But like I I did find myself like, oh, he's leading this person without doing too much paternalizing he's like leading at least john to a state of better mint of some kind he's taken under his wing he's sort of throwing him the ropes and then by the end of it i think it's just at the end 
by the end, I'm not like, I think it's leaving me that space. I don't think it's as quite as didactic about, um, you know, sort of challenging me to empathize with the character as maybe you saw it to be. I think it's more leaving that sort of open, like, does he deserve this sort of like, does he deserve empathy for, you know, doing what he did to protect uh, the, the sort of version of himself that he had put before John, because John counted on that to make what we are assuming is supposed to be a better life for himself in Niagara Falls with, with Clementine. Um, Aaron, because you have fallen on like this side of the fence about like whether or not it's enjoyable mm-hmm. anyway, even if it's doing what it's, excuse me, uh, completing what it's trying to do or not, does like Sydney's empathetic, empathetic character factor in here for you? And if so, did that work? Was he? Um, I don't know if we're necessarily supposed to empathize, I would say, with Sydney. I think we're supposed to maybe kind of rationally understand where he's coming from. Uh, I probably, I think we're supposed to disagree uh, with his kind of actions at the end of the film. Um, I I don't disagree with Harry's portrayal of Sydney's character. I think I do disagree with, with your uh, uh, portrayal of, of Clementine and uh, of Jimmy. Um, I think like the one area where I do agree and I, I'm kind of thinking about it is, is the film, I mean, you described it as like, is, is John as a character, like acting like goofy or like cartoonishly, right. In order for uh, kind of Sydney to act yeah. as, yes, childish. I do think that's probably correct. Like I, I, I did have a thought while watching this movie that like, it's wild that like John C. Riley's character in this is like 90% of the DNA of like walk hard. <laughs> it's like, it's like kind of the same as like that spoof character in like his like general affectations. He's and I think a lot so of that's just infantilized. He's good yeah. at playing a big old doofus. Um, I yeah. I can understand like disagreeing with like the film uh, writing him in that manner. But like, I think we're su- supposed to, un- I, I, I think we're supposed to understand that he is like pretty dumb. I think the film is making a kind of a general statement about the, the kind of people who are attracted to Las Vegas uh, uh, for the reasons that people, people often are attracted to Las Vegas. And I think that like, we're supposed to understand that it, Philip Baker Hall's character, like Sydney is, is like completely misguided, like not just because uh, you know, of, of his past and kind of the hypocrisy of like raising this, this person whose father you killed. But like, we're also supposed to understand that like his entire aims are kind of wrong from the beginning because Las Vegas is this like cursed place that cannot offer the kind of things that, that he is like bought into it for. Right. Um, that like Las Vegas is not like this kind of clean slate. It is like kind of a copy and pasted version of Atlantic city. In fact, it is Atlantic city, like, squared it is it is like a larger version even more corrupt and evil version of atlantic city that may not have like the exact same like racial uh or like mob connections although those were certainly present in las vegas as well um but that like you know his, his effort to kind of just like push everything behind him from atlantic city and like reapply himself in a new manner to las vegas even like though he's doing all the same flawed. things right like he's literally following yes. the same playbook he's like hey like use this rate card this is how you like sort of game the system to try to get money etc yes. sure he's still uh, fundamentally playing the game life, literally folks. no it's a like, it's so simplistic i could not believe that that was like it, it reminded me of like, uh, i'm fine 
it reminded me of in the card counter, the Paul Schrader movie, when um, yeah. people busted him because Oscar Isaac gives a monologue explaining card counting, and it's word for yeah. word lifted from the Wikipedia for card, card counting. That's a true story. I mean, in the final yes. film, that is, it's the current card counting like description is lifted word for word and put into the script. It reminded me of that. Yes. Where it was just like, yeah, this is so stupid and simple. But I think you're right. I like granted. I think that's kind of part of the point, right? I, 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 uh, not to go on too, like, large of, like, a digression here, but, like, th- this is, like, something I've been thinking about quite a bit due to the, like, rising prominence of, like, uh, uh, I would assume, I have not, I'm not on TikTok, but I assume it's on TikTok, uh, but specifically, like, on Instagram and, and other social media sites, the prominence of, like, gambling streamers as like a thing right i don't know if you guys have seen this but like stage no is, like, but i'm already right extremely now. uh depressed about it uh you you should search it so the thing about stake is is that they are an online gambling website uh and they host games they host like you can play blackjack you can play all sorts of stuff kind of the, the biggest one that is like the most popular for streaming is literally a button where you enter your bet anywhere from like dozens to hundreds of dollars and you push a button and a ball goes down like a Shenmue-esque little pyramid of pegs. We talking like, we talking you know, lucky hit right now? <laughs> you kind How about of, a game like, of lucky you lose hit? your money and like there's like, you know, 20 slots on the bottom and like 15 you lose your money and the ones on the outside you get your money, right? And they are not like I'm sure somewhere they present the odds probably because they legally have to, right? But like the thing is they pay like big streamers and like celebrities like Drake has done this. A lot of big celebrities have done this to play. And what they do is they like give them a bunch of like fake money to play with and they increase the odds that they win. And so you get people like Drake just like hammering a button that says $10,000 per ball. And they're just like doing 50 of them for like no consequence. And like kids are watching this and seeing like him hit a jackpot. That's the most evil thing I have ever heard. And like the, the thing about gambling, like ties into like movies is that like the conceit that like Harry is kind of making fun of, of like the walk around the room and like talk, talk to the show floor guy and like come back and like, you just made $200 by spending 30 minutes playing slots. Like the thing about like, like gambling and like real life is that like you lose like that, that's that the is, point it is a statistical yes. certainty you do lose there is no cheating the system which, like, except for except for counting cards in which case you probably still lose but they literally make you stop playing which is which is my favorite thing about the phenomenal martin scorsese movie casino which yes. is all about that which is all about like yes. hey like it's like you don't win the, you cannot win the casino no business winning. is a business the point is that you lose and like casinos themselves will tell you that I actually kind of like applying that lens to this movie right like but the, the problem with it is that um, in my mind then like it makes the whole like Clementine situation even worse for me where like it, it feels like like the the problem the criticism of this movie comes down not on Sydney except for Sydney being sort of misguided because he wants these people to be more than they are and it feels like the movie is telling him like oh the reason he's wrong is because there was never any saving John C Riley's character there was never any saving Clementine they were already doomed from the very start and like your pathetic attempts to sort of like steer them on a better path would never have worked out in the first place and like look at how uh, impotent and, and uh, pathetic you are for trying. And it's like, for me, that is the utter wrong criticism, right? And like, that's not why Sydney is wrong. Sydney is wrong because like trying to be paternalistic and 
ingratiate yourself into these people's lives so that you can change them is like really fundamentally like uh, condescending and agency eradicating and like demonstrates a deep contempt for the people as they are, which like the movie does a, a decent job of showing that like Sydney fucking hates Clementine and is like deeply contemptuous of the fact that she's chosen sex work, even though he tries not to be. And I don't know how much of that is just 1996, but like there are literally multiple conversations where she's like, yeah, you think I'm a piece of shit because I do sex work. Huh? And he's like, no, no, I don't. And like the, the least sort of like, um, believable way possible and then his entire plot is predicated on trying to marry her off so that she can finally become honorable again and then the entire way that that fails is she has sex with another guy for money anyway um and nobody can figure out why and then her he doesn't try and marry that that's, that's a misportrayal. that is what happens in the movie dog no yes but that is that is i i i did yeah i mean i think i i disagree with your all right portrayal of those kids i do not think that he I think he is he is quite shaken by the fact that these two characters had this even dumber than Romeo and Juliet style wedding uh, after one night of being like that. Like we 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 are supposed to understand that John C. Riley is a big old doofus. Uh, Clementine is also a big old doofus, right? Uh, they are both. Which pretty dumb. Also, like, yeah. you can say that, like, yes. Which but, is also something but, right. I hate about this movie, right? It's predicated on the uh, fact that, like, hey, look at these stupid characters and point and laugh at them and how different they are from you. I don't think, but I don't think we're supposed <laughs> to point and laugh at them either. I, I think that, like, yes, these characters are making the wrong choices, but I think that, like, by the time you see, you know, fucking John hanging out with Jimmy, like, you kind of understand where this is going, right? You understand, like, how that character is at least thematically going to be involved involved down the line. I don't think the point is like pointing and laughing. And also I don't think the point is, I like, mean, obviously it's not, uh, but you know what I'm saying, right? It's like, yeah, I, I know, I know what you're saying. I know Pred- what you're saying, predicating an like, entire movie I, on two of your four characters, just being stupid is such a, is such a bad approach not, to a movie. I mean, we're, we're saying stupid is like a joking manner, but I think that they are, they have been warped by the, yes, the yeah, town that better. they live okay, in sure. and like how that impacts their desires, right? And I think that like you said something earlier that I really disagreed with, with which was like John, uh, you know, you, you, not to not to just like use quotes from a, a very long description of the film, but like you know, you said that like he he hits Clementine, right? And that's like a character that we're supposed to like, you know, doing this this bad thing, and it's like. I think we're supposed to view that as like a very awful thing. Yeah, to no, do, I know. Right. Sure. Um, and out and of character I, for John. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, maybe kind of in character. Yeah. But like, <laughs> but like, yes, I think we are supposed to view John. It's a breaking like, and point Clementine for these characters. As very flawed characters. This is, this is an existential to view... threat to who they are and who Sydney wants them to be at this moment. Right. He sees them unraveling. He is desperately trying yes. to put them back together. I would, part yes. of, part of why John hits her is to demonstrate how far fallen they are. Right. That like these people who have this like really pure Romeo and Juliet esque love, like it's being like, it's threatened now. I don't and even Sydney know. He has to put it back together. Not to interrupt, but I don't. I, I we I have defended, and I think you agree with me on this podcast. Romeo and Juliet is a a love story as opposed to some sort of satire. Many times in the past, uh, I I think that like that is the obvious. Just due to like the length of time, I think that is like the obvious comparison. I don't view this as like Romeo yeah, and Juliet. I view as like uh, uh, a a pure expression of love that is 
very protracted due to practical reasons. Uh, I view this as like inherently foolish. Yeah, right? of course. And I, I think sure. like the in my mind, I view the ending for these characters as like having the potential of like being right in a very warped manner due to to Sydney doing this, or awful at thing. least better than it would have been. Yes, but that is also um, predicated like, on the fact that it is inherently better for Sydney to not be a sex worker anymore. I do. Uh, that's the, that's Sydney's whole fucking y- purpose, dog. <laughs> y- yes, I I will say I am like sympathetic to the the reading of like this film's portrayal of sex work is like negative. I don't. Frankly, I think it's a lot better than most of the stuff from the '90s that was very. I don't give a you shit know, about uh, that. I'll save you. I'll save you from this. This life. I think that's sort of exactly situation. what it's doing, honestly. But that's. Uh, I think that's a lot of what it's doing, but I, I don't actually think the film is inherently like negative towards Clementine. It due tries to that. not to be the way that Sydney tries not to be, and I think they both fail. And I think that the movie maybe wants Sydney to fail it, but I don't know if the movie wants to fail itself. <laughs> I think that I think the film is not so much saying like, "Hey, you shouldn't prostitute yourself," so much as it is saying like, "Hey, uh, uh, the the structure of of uh, uh, how this works in Las Vegas is like deeply vile and evil, and like the the how power works in that situation is like it's, you're, ridiculously tilted." Yeah, you're saying like, it's it's merely concern trolling rather than making aspersions <laughs> about somebody's like yes, yeah. and 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 like you know the the the. That is also a viewpoint that that sex workers routinely criticize, um, uh, you know, for for being like, yeah, but the, it is the more fair. Who are right? doing like, sex work understand that, like, and and sex yes, they, sex work is a complicated topic, right? Like, yes, yes. like se- sex work is like it's not something to be disparaged, but it it does arise from fundamental inequalities that exist in society, yeah. right? In many yes. ways, and like drug use or like a lot of other things, and so like I get it, right? Like it's not as cut and dry. I just like the amount of like punishment that is leveled against Clementine in this movie, Clementine, and how little Clementine has to say about her own agency uh, in I, this does movie. She not though, does the does the act of kidnapping the guy? I mean, is yeah. that not a this is a this breaking is where, point? Where I, was... I mean, I'm not going to say that's some sort of like grand grand like uh, a moment of agency no. for her character, but I think that like that is her sure. in some manner mm-hmm. uh, uh, kind of wrestling control in the only way that she can, given right. her like very she... low position of power. Precisely. In the, the environment that she lives in, right? She, and like, that's not perfect. Sorry, Jason, I'm cutting you no, off. No, I mean, it's, it's okay. I was trying to cut it on you because you got to a point that I was hoping to get to myself, which was like, I think she's built as like, she's set up as through her own lines and not to say that like, this is going to excuse the whole ethos, pathos and purpose of the movie, but it through her own uh, dialogue, she explains that she is not a person who has a plan and that she has like dreams necessarily that she is particularly disappointed in herself about it. She just doesn't have those things. She's not confident in what she wants as a person, as a sex worker, et cetera. Uh, but she's confident that nobody else gets to determine that for her. I think that's what drives her to like, take this uh, John hostage and like, you know, still presumably even after she and uh, I use the term John in the sex work way, but I did not mean the character John, she and John end up uh, married and presumably, I don't know for sure, but maybe she continues her trade after getting married. And I guess it's left ambiguous, but there's just like, I think it's the fact that this movie is a little loud about its attempts to like, 
portray this character with dignity and interiority. There's the whole scene where she first meets Sydney uh, for coffee, and she said, and he like she says, "You think I'm somebody who's got you know saving up for college and to own a beauty parlor and stuff?" And she sort of like dashes the concept right there of like you can't white knight me kind of thing because I don't, I you know that's not necessarily what I want. I'm still figuring it out. And it's very loud about that. And it's a yeah, 24 year old white guy who wrote those lines. So your mileage may vary grain of salt and everything. Um, but the fact that it does put that forth before the character, I think makes it feel a little bit patronizing uh, in the way that Harry's describing is like, the especially fact that the because does he explicitly then say that does is, white knight her like right. fully. I mean, like I, maybe you can argue that he is shocked that they got married, but he was clearly trying to set them up. Like, don't give me that shit. Like he puts her in John C. Riley's room at one point. It is very uh, yeah, clear that he is trying to like put together because he wants his little foster family, which is cute, you know. And like I think that that's textual, and I think that the movie thinks that's a bad idea and, and paternalistic and doomed. Um, and I think that's textual too, right? Like I'm not I'm not disagreeing with that. I don't I don't know about though that like she even your characterization that she was like, oh, I don't want anybody to determine those things for me. I don't think that's really accurate. Like I no. I keep coming back to the fact that for one thing she lets herself be white knighted super easily and happily uh and and second like her big monologue the crux of this movie why did she continue to go and have sex with this guy even after she and john c Riley were married why did she try to do this is her having a, a tearful breakdown and saying i don't know in Sydney's car and then Sydney has to comfort her and they move on. And like, I think that's maybe because the movie didn't bother to write a better explanation than that. I think that you can project some sort of agency onto that where it's like, well, maybe subconsciously she knew that this thing wasn't going to work out with John C. Riley, or maybe subconsciously she wanted to preserve her own agency and that's why she wanted the money so bad. Right. But like, I think that the real like answer there is that the movie doesn't know why she did this because I don't think the movie gives a fucking shit about why she did this because I think this movie is sort of like, well, she's a whore after all, like, and whores are going to whore. Like that was really what I came away with from that decision in that series of sort of like, and that, that is the thing that, that really like paternalistically gets to me about this movie is this idea that like, Oh, like Sydney can't win. Not because his, uh, paternalism is evil and misguided but because the people he's trying to paternalize are doomed anyway because it's las vegas baby and it's like no like i don't i don't know like i would i would much rather this movie come away with like las vegas isn't necessarily the problem maybe it's part of the problem but sydney is is part of the problem right like i think especially for a movie that is critiquing a main character in the model of scorsese like i think it needs to wrap back around to somehow like this is Sydney's issue, right? Like Sydney is perpetuating this problem. I think that's what the movie tries to do. I just don't think it gets there personally. I, I'm not sure that it really tries that hard. I'll be honest. Like I, I see like the, the noticing these things as shortcomings and it like with more runtime, with a more experienced writer director, with more voices than just one, like we said, white guy fresh out of college. I think it could have like tried for that. I don't think it really does try for that. And maybe it just feels like grabbing for something that isn't there and hoping that it, the movie was something more than it would be. Uh, I, I, I guess from that lens, I would definitely be more disappointed in it. I don't know that I saw its stakes being set that high. So when it fell short of like those, I, I guess I'm not too disappointed. So do you think it wasn't trying to do anything? 
like that? Like, what do you think this movie was trying to I, say? I think it's literally just character piece. Uh, uh, like Sydney as somebody who from a different time, uh, per, like desires certain things from his life. He wants a protege. He wants a found family. Um, and he never realizes that like, he's not destined to have those things and instead rails against it. And instead, uh, puts forth, you know, not puts forth. He, uh, uh, he literally like defends his, um, ability to have those things to like by wreaking havoc on, literally like we were saying earlier the next generation jimmy he kills a man to not just for the six thousand dollars man but to too right a, a black man uh a black man younger than him a generation younger than him to preserve a lie that allows him to keep that little found family understanding of himself also right like he can now see himself he's gonna hide again gigantically on the nose thing at the end he's gonna hide the blood stains on his own cuff from himself and you know never tell John about the presumably never tell John about this uh, magnificent lie that he's been building over the last several years. Um, I think like the open endedness of it in that way is like part of the, again, if, if we, we said Sydney is the main character, the fact that we don't, don't see Sydney beforehand, that his like secret is revealed toward the end and that we don't know how it ends up for him is part of like the, wow, this is kind of like a doomed thing for them all. It could unravel tomorrow because who knows how many people were in the same bar that uh, that fucking Jimmy was, where he learned about what um, what Sydney did. I, I guess I don't see that it's shooting for a whole lot more sociological or uh, you know uh, social statement or what it's trying to do bigger than what it is. And that's you know for better or worse, I think it's better. I think limiting the scope there allows it to not fuck itself so hard on its on what it might try to do. I can only imagine what it would have turned out to be if you tried to give it more, if you put another 25, 30 minutes into this movie and tried to show us more of these things or tried to expand some of these th scenes to consider more per perspectives. I can't imagine somebody at 24 years old, even somebody who turned out to be pretty talented at what he does, like Paul Thomas Anderson, cannot imagine him tackling something bigger than that and doing it with any flair or aplomb. Um, feels like it would just come off okay. really even weaker, maybe. Interesting. Again, I, I'm not really like a fan of comparing it to the rest of his filmography or like what he did as an artist later on, but just in isolation, I find it very, uh, like, I, I guess Aaron said it best when he said it, like, it just goes down smooth in that way. I see what it did. I see both ends of this book, and I don't need to consider much more than, uh, than beyond. Maybe I just, maybe I'm sticking my head in the sand about like the narrative and this, <laughs> the place of this movie and stories like this in the broader scheme of media fiction. Uh, it, it allowed me to enjoy the movie a little bit more and it wasn't hard to do. So that was my experience, I guess. Yeah. See, I guess where I differ is I just don't, I don't think, first of all, I don't think I really disagree or I really agree that it's not trying to do those things. Why mm -hmm. have John C. Riley and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in this movie? If you're not making some kind of comment about that, I mean, that's the story. Um, but also, I, I don't know that you can help it, right? Like, I think that, like, whether or not you're just trying to play with, with a character, you end up making bigger statements using your movie to get there. And I don't like a lot of the statements that this movie ends up making about um, people uh, and about, I think that, like, I the, the most generous thing I guess I could say is I think you're right. I think that, like, I like the way you characterize Sydney. I like the, the sort of uh, Don Quixote-esque nature of uh, Sydney's quest. I even sort of like the idea that like Sydney is going to continue to do harm 
because of his like blatant attempts to sustain this lie. And maybe mm-hmm. that is the way in which the cycle perpetuates itself, right? Like maybe that's that's why this terrible thing keeps happening is because of people like Sydney who will do anything to preserve the lie, right? To just keep betting hard eight until it works out. And then when it does work out, they're going to uh, pretend like that was their plan all along. Um, I just don't, I think it really like, it does a disservice to its characters in the process. It, it kind of ends up being, in my mind, a little bit misogynistic. And ultimately, I like. I just don't find what it has to say about Sydney all that interesting or uplifting because it's it's ultimately like a critique of paternalism that that is so like such a soft target in my mind and so obvious. It's like yeah yeah of course like if this guy like comes in and tries to ignore the context of these people's lives and rebuild them in his own image for himself it's not going to work out and he's going to have to do terrible things to them and to everybody else to keep sustaining that it's like that's not you're not telling me anything i guess um but Aaron what i don't know what do you think where do you come come I, away it it, it yeah, i i hope this does not come off as condescending but you you have a common criticism of movies that I've noticed that I'm trying to get a handle on, which is, I think you, hopefully this is not me trying to, again, not trying to psychoanalyze. I'm trying to get you pegged here because I think you, you, we often disagree on movies and I feel it's due to this kind of a vibe and I'm trying to, to get a handle on it. I think you, you often, when you, when you watch movies that have a critique, some sort of larger critique of society or of, uh, uh, history or, or whatnot, the, you know, uh, political moments, things of that nature. I think you often like the characters within them to, how do, how do I voice it? You, you had kind of a, a same criticism of a movie like the green Knight, which is like such a weird, like kind of opposite, like it literally has nothing in common with this fucking movie. But I think you like, you'd like the characters to kind of in up in a place that like, closely aligns with that larger criticism that is like not like pessimistic but is like kind of tearing down or like revealing some sort of truth in a, in a manner do you know what i'm saying and i think that like i am like i kind of don't like that often uh in a weird way and i think that like that's often where we disagree that's interesting Maybe because i've not voiced this i think that's exactly where this movie ends up is it not like i think that this movie is very pessimistic and in the end it shows sydney murdering someone to sustain a lie and then going back to the the scene of the crime as it were the original scene and just covering it up and being like well one more again like let's make it happen yeah i you would you would have liked to see a scene where where, or like a a thematic ending in which sydney uh is forced to come to come to terms with his the, the the limits of his paternalism and like the limits of that sort of uh uh assistance and like the condescension inherent in it you would like to see him like confront i wanted to see john like, c Riley kill sydney if we're playing backseat yes, director this is the, that is absolutely what you would like to see in this movie and a lot of movies overall and i disagree with that uh, i am I, I i like the ending where sydney is able to to push his coat over his shirt and just keep going about his day where he we're like Yes, this this sure, but good I think things can I think you're oversimplifying. By, you're oversimplifying my yeah. characters because, like, I'm not saying that I want I this to have to. a tidy. I know a, a tidy yes. ending where, like, oh, like f- good, like I I get because, like, I know that the movie's a critique yeah. anyway. 
like I I know that the movie is like not saying that Sydney's a cool guy and we should all be be like Sydney. I don't I don't have an issue with that. I just find that like it makes it so inert to me. This this whole uh-huh. critique, this whole process is like so boring, I guess, or like so uh-huh. underbaked. That I yeah I guess I would like to see something because like at least the sort of like backseat director ending that I'm proposing it would have pushed these characters to confront themselves a little bit more and would have created some drama right like I would love to see John C Riley's character have to reckon with the fact that Sidney killed his dad or that there is some sort of like he's not the godsend that John always thought he was right he's not the the replacement surrogate father I mean I think it's better right and and more tragic in some ways that that never happens right because like the fridge horror of this movie is that John C Riley's character will never know that Sydney murdered his dad, right? And, like, isn't that terrible? So, like, I get it, but I just think that, like, it's such an avoidance, I guess. I don't know. It's, like, mm-hmm. I really want, like, give me something to, like, feel, to, like, latch onto here, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. In the in the absence of that, this all just feels so, like, it's such an exercise to me, I guess. Sure. Okay, I get yeah, but that. I, I like your I like your characterization a lot, though. I think that's a pretty good uh, point that you're making. Yeah, without without some of that, without some of what Aaron was outlining there, it can feel a little weightless. It like makes me think in isolation of, and we haven't talked about it at all because what more do you say about it? But the scene with Philip Seymour Hoffman as the craps player, um, where you oh, kind yeah. of get what this scene is doing. Great scene. It is con- it, it is wonderful, right? It's and it's really just because of Philip Seymour Hoffman, but it's uh, sort goat. of positioning. Truly, uh, it's positioning Sydney in opposition to like somebody drawn to the same thing he is, works in the, lives in the same world as he is, but has a completely different attitude about it. it. Is like not the sort of humble old guy keeps things under control type thing. Like it, I think that's the whole purpose of that scene from beginning to end and you sort of see it coming. And from the first second, from the second that you hear Philip Seymour Hoffman say, Oh, I like, so you're saying that this is like a black mirror situation where it's like, Oh, like this is like, this is Sydney as the most, not what he wants to be. And maybe who he really is on the inside. (laughs) Sure. I, I think it's just like, Little scenes like that reveal they build toward like the whole of the character that we come to see by the end. Uh, they're not like diversions. They're not smoke screens. They're not, uh, you know, trying to make us believe something about him that we don't already think. But it is like it makes the end ring a little bit, I guess, more, I guess, truer to the character. And I, when we say why are John and Clementine there? I think truly it is to build Sydney as a character. I think it is so that he has something to play against. I think like I'm okay with that as the scope of the movie. I'm okay with the scope of the movie, not being like him getting his comeuppance or learning anything about his position as, you know, a sort of a, 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 a wizened old, like a sage, one of the older generation, somebody who's supposed to be leading rather than and whatever. Like he's, I'm okay with him not being that uh, in the scope of this story, because it is fairly small in scope. And because the, the, like the end place it leaves with Sydney for me is, uh, is like a continuation is like a look at like how 
I guess there's a certain melancholy sadness to he has done this terrible thing to preserve what he wants when what he wants is objectively like the wrong at, at many other people's expense. And he really is just like, he's the bad guy. Truly. Um, I think like that is quite enough for me as far as the scope of this movie goes. And I'm okay with it just being a character piece about Sydney. Um, but it does feel like when you have the expectations of, and like you say, you can see it coming and you can be bored by the end when it doesn't go, go anywhere else. I guess I didn't go in with those expectations or with that understanding uh, to like think ahead of it and like sort of predict where it was going to go. I was okay. Just following in, in a lot of cases. Um, I think that the thing for me is that where it leaves, um, I, I wanted the critique of, Sydney to have more teeth because I think Sydney's a piece of shit, and I don't know that the yeah. movie thinks he's a piece of shit. I I think that, I think that the movie I does. Think the think movie he's thinks he's, yeah. his his crime is somewhat irredeemable, at least okay. in the way that he is going I, but about I, it. I think right. I think that the movie kind of wants I like kind of wants us to sympathize with what he wants, right? Yeah, because he's cool. Yeah, well, and, yeah, and no, to, to build a better, he wants Las Vegas <laughs> to be something else, and and even if he <laughs> has to pretend like it is. He's cool. We like watching him. When he shows up in a TV, we're like, fuck, that's Philip Baker Hall. I hope he has some snarky words for the main character Look of the TV mole show. Look at that on that motherfucker's right cheek. That's, that thing sticks out a whole inch. Is that a crime? So, okay, yeah, this movie's pretty good if, as long as you don't think about it at all. Yeah, that's you, where but, finally. Just like the beekeeper. What are you doing? Wow, you're cracking do we... a beer with your bud. Well, no, in this case, you're you're having an old fashioned with your buds. That does sound pretty you're nice. Off your brain. If I had an old fashioned wow. and a cigarette while I was watching this, I probably would have liked it a lot more. Coffee right after, literally, yes, actually, literally, I think literally, maybe a cigar, maybe one of those those really like frankly tacky whiskey glasses that has the the little hole for the cigar to sit in while you drink it. I've never seen like, that. Those fucking suck. you've never seen that. That they make, sounds it's just like a little like little cavern in the glass that you slide a thing. It wow. sucks. I've never seen an actual respectable person drinking with. Water. See, the, I think this is what uh, the movie had to do for me. Make Sydney not cool. Fucking divest him of his coolness. Show hmm. like no. show off that he's a dumb. When he's walking, mark. The have some that kid like Jason because that he is. Song. His whole life he's a Jason dumb hit mark. That fucking song. But they the movie refuses to do that to him. Refuses to show hey, here, that please. he's a real dumb idiot who believes. Let him go. Just second. let him go. This is normal. Close your eyes. Just Philip Baker Hall walking the tables. Anyway, I'm looking forward to this showing up for best Trilon dry run, and <laughs> he'll probably be on there. Yeah, too. I mean, I don't know what's on Cavemen will be uh, like, "Well, we I like have... the way the music made me feel, and I like the images <laughs> on the screen, and it's, I don't look, like the sound is half sure. sound is half the fucking film, buddy. What do you want me Whoa. to say? It's not just a visual medium. Uh, for the rest of this visual series, I don't know. Audible. Maybe maybe there are a few things in the rest of the heights and Trilon audible, um, audible or auditory. Ooh, visual medium. What's what is the? I think it's auditory hearing. Auditory. Audible. Audible, sounds audible. Right, yeah. audible is possible to be heard. Auditory is okay. by, necess- by necessity of the medium. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that I think should probably conclude our discussion. It is like the beekeeper in that it's uh, you know a land of contrasts. Um, I we have a couple final bits. Uh, the my only juncture thought is God, what a fucking um, scene from Philip Seymour Hoffman, and I love that he could be not in the movie, and the movie would be more or less the same. I like how it builds Sydney as a character, but. Uh, we have, oh God, I didn't use the junk drawer sound. Got to, got to stuff those things in there. They're all on the shelf and now shove them into the shelf, uh, as for part of the formal junk drawer. Um, 
Harry, Aaron, did you have any junk drawer thoughts about this movie? Anything that we didn't get into in the main conversation? I mean, I, I don't want to be an ass. I feel like I've been a real asshole on this podcast. So I apologize to both of you, and I apologize to anybody who really loves this movie. Um, I hated the script also. To me, this like and like I'm not going to come out come against it too hard because again, PTA was 24. Uh, I agree with Aaron. This is like clearly a demonstration of talent. Um, everything about this script screamed like Tarantino wannabe to me. It, First it was like scene, you telling me, yeah, not a fan, yeah. I was not. I again, Philip Seymour or uh, John C. Riley's character is so fucking half baked in that scene. He's so like a, like a wide eyed little boy who is just there to eat up what is given. Ultimately, and it, it's six thousand dollars. It's so frictionless. Wow. I oh yeah, okay. I uh, so yeah, I thought I thought that the uh, I I think one of the reasons why I dislike this movie as much as I do, and I apologize, is that like it is so of its time and like situated in exactly the 1996 indie movement. Um, you can just tell that fucking PTA loved Reservoir Dogs, uh, maybe for all the wrong reasons and wanted to, wanted to be just like his hero, Quentin Tarantino. And, you know, I'm glad that, uh, that one, he got to have that, uh, dream come true because he, uh, and Tarantino and Fiona Apple did so much cocaine together that Fiona Apple decided never to do cocaine again because of how fucking annoying those two guys were. Um, which is a dream come true for all of them, honestly. Um, PTA went on to be a great filmmaker. Uh, I think The Master is one of my favorite movies ever. Um, I just think that this one the is a uh, master. Yeah, that's my I favorite knew his PTA. Ass was gonna name the yeah, master. Dude, that's the I, best look, one. I knew his I mean, ass the, the, was the best one is there will the be blood, but. The master is also very, very good. I, look, here's the thing: I don't necessarily disagree. <laughs> it's just, you know, you're it's you're playing a bit, a little bit too close to the bit here, Harry. <laughs> he lost himself in the bit again. Um, Aaron, did you have any final thoughts here? Uh, any discussion points you didn't bring up? Uh, it, you know, it really is a shame that Samuel Jackson would play this character, but better in Jackie Brown one year after this. Mm-hmm. Jackie Brown you know, is so much better than this so movie. Clearly, it is a better. <laughs> yeah. But Jackie Brown, Jackie Brown's one of the greats. You know what I mean? And this is just a good, very good movie. You know, so that's, you know, Jackie Brown. Look, I agree how with many half movies of that. are better than Jackie Brown? Not many. Not many. Good point. Good point. Jason, you no, seen no. Jackie Brown? It's very I've good. seen Jackie Brown. It has been many years. I think it was Hell one of the f- one of the first Tarantino movies. I know I saw it before Pulp Fiction, and I think I got to go back to it to remember why why I liked it. Um, Robert Forster. It was probably my first movie I ever saw. Robert Forster. That in. Tarantino was doing the thing where where he was like, "Well, surely if I write the main character of the movie to be a woman, I'll get better at writing women." And the answer was kind of. <laughs> a resounding yeah uh, kind of, he's, uh, got, he's, got kind some, of. he's got some banger female characters uh, Sir is, is kind of a good version uh she's obsessed like with daisy being and the hateful mother. eight um but you know mm, daisy and the hateful eight uh maybe uh harry our next fellows watch should be one of the kill bill movies because still never seen him uh well that will close out the junk drawer thank y'all for your junk drawer thoughts i don't have a sound effect for it and everybody hates this bit but i'm gonna go for it anyway i'm the rebel i'm the bad boy theater runner uh, going with bastards what sorry keep going with uh, oh the theater running lady from glorious bastards yeah good good for yeah, you. She's yeah. Solid. yeah I, I like that i like that movie quite a bit yep 
uh, th- there's one last segment we like, or that I, I don't know about anybody else. I, I really like, um, it's called, uh, other loves we've tried. I pull episodes that we've done about, uh, about movies that released in the same year as this one, just for some context, you know, we got such a large library behind us. Uh, we had episode 18 Fargo with Emily Sui, also released in 1996, 124 on bottle rocket. One of my favorites, God, what a fun dry run for me. Uh, waiting for Guffman in episode 231 and episode 247 on Scream. Not necessarily the greatest quantity of movies. Damn, all those movies are so much better than this one. But really good. I don't think you're finding it in, in like an audience against that. At no, least Aaron is I, super I against bottle that. Rocket. Bro, that's fine. Get on, get on the Bottle Rocket Express, bitch. Uh, it's a good. It's a really good movie. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, thank you for enduring once more uh, an, an edition of Other Loves We've Tried. Maybe sometime this year, before episode 300, I'll have a sound effect for it. But right now, uh, in the absence of our fourth host, um, whose voice you will not have heard throughout the course of this episode, uh, he's off playing in Nintendo Land or some fucking shit. He's off with Pikmin, and I'm here uh, where it's, it's just really broken 30 up. degrees. Yeah. It's really fucked up. Um, now, check him out, uh, Cody underscore BH, wherever you go to social media. But I should point you toward a piece on Perisphere about this this movie before we close out about this movie uh, hard eight over on perisphere the trial on blog edited by former guest and friend of the podcast fit odom excuse me finn odom not fid uh it is called meet sydney yeah very character focused piece a very character focused title for a very character focused piece on paul thomas anderson's hard eight by mh Rowe. i hope i'm pronouncing mh's last name correctly uh for perisphere the trial on blog you can find a link to it in the show notes it is a really uh detailed examination of that character um i think it supports uh aaron's and my assertions about that the whole story kind of revolving around him uh and i don't know if it's going to convince anybody who doesn't like it what that it's good but it's a it's a really good piece for those of you who enjoyed the movie and want to get a little bit more out of it check it out at perisphere.org uh, get tickets to the 15th film noir festival on neo noir going on all winter long i think they call it yeah all winter long at the trilon and at the heights the rest of this series includes if you're listening to this at time of release you can still catch hard eight at the trilon i believe there's a nine seven and nine fifteen showings based on my little calendar paper here uh we've also got branded to kill blowout chinatown uh chiggity chown the chinatown uh the chinese chinatown uh miller's crossing bonnie and clyde miami blues long day's journey to night breathless la piscine and pennies from heaven going on all throughout february check it out at trialon.org all the movies are listed there all the tickets are available there check it out um and follow them on twitter while you're at it at trialon cinema and instagram i think is the same handle you can find us our podcast here at trilove podcast and uh you can find me this person me at nintendoofus i've been harry mackin sorry about being a downer on this episode you can find me on twitter at punish take Harry, if you ever dislike a fucking movie on this podcast, this is like we're supposed to be on everything on cinema. Five bags of popcorn to everything. We like all the movies. <laughs> we give them all thumbs up. Let's do an episode uh, no, about I'm the Hobbit. Kidding. I was gonna be. I was gonna be pissed if anybody made like a hard eight innuendo. I hate when like because the, the movie film does, does that. that. I know, and that's why I was gonna be pissed because like I swear one of these motherfuckers comes in here and being like, "Oh, they called me hard eight. I was gonna be super pissed because you can't do it if the movie also does it, folks. You can't really do it do even it. if the movie does it. To be honest, or even if the movie doesn't do it because it's not that funny. No, you can do it if the movie doesn't do it because then it's funny. Sure, okay. But if the movie does it, then you can't. Anyway, uh, my name's Aaron. I'm not. You know, I hey, here's the thing. I, I briefly 
went, uh, tried to log into Twitter just to clear out notifications in case anybody's messaged me and didn't know I'm not on Twitter. Uh, and it's now asking me for like my birthday and a bunch of my favorite hobbies. Is that a new thing? Do you guys know about that? I think that? if you close out the app and try again, you can get in without doing that. Um, I don't remember it asking me that. It asked you for sounds... its, your hobbies? Yeah. It was like, hey, what do you like? <laughs> what kind of hobbies you got? What are you into? <laughs> That's weird. Yeah, what, what are you I into? I have not been asked. You come that. here often? Are you being, uh, you are you being hacked? You want to come back to my place? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, when do you uh, get off anyway, work? That's my last uh, uh, digression. Uh, you can, you know, talk to you later. Find Aaron on Letterboxd. I think it's Arby Please. I forget. Uh, and give him, yes. get him over the uh, 100 Arby Please mark on his yes. review I didn't of think uh, about that, but Long yes, Arby The Hand. Uh, short, short film, The Hand. Check it out. Uh, Arby Please, Letterboxd. I am two likes away from the big 100. You're still lagging behind uh, also like co-host Cody Narvison on his review of, oh gee, I keep forgetting which movie it is that he keeps sending screenshots of but he's broken the, the 100 club on a certain review it's an animated film yeah, yeah i think uh african if i remember correctly i think it's an african animated film yeah anyway uh but cody doesn't need him um your your boy over here is shaking coins Kira cow and the sorceress 1998 film classic that classic everybody knows and loves uh in his absence i'm gonna say follow cody at cody underscore bh uh follow us at twitter uh, on Twitter at Trial of Podcast and uh, see you next time. I hate that. I hate editing podcasts like that. Let's not do that.